Hi, writers. Welcome to our new episode on writing fiction, both novels and short stories. This is Jim Thayer. As you have likely deduced, I am more than your writing guide. I'm also your lifestyle mentor, your guide to the fashionable and the fabulous. And I have some strong advice. I hope you will someday, and I trust you will someday, publish your novel or your collection of short stories. Your publisher will want a photo of you for the dust jacket and the publisher's webpage. Here's the first piece of advice. Have the photograph taken by a professional. Photography is like drumming. There's more to it than we lay people know. You will look better in a professional photograph than in one taken by your spouse or partner or friend or, heaven forfend, by yourself in a selfie. And secondly, here's some advice on aesthetics. The publisher will want a head and shoulders shot. Do not include your hand in the photo. (laughs) Touching your chin or resting it on your shoulder... Uh, resting your hand on your shoulder or putting your chin on your knuckles or anything else. I don't know why some authors fall for this bit of photographic foolery. Just your head and shoulders should be in the photo. Keep your hand out of the photograph. The reason is, in a shoulder and head photo, sticking a hand in there makes the photo come across as too posed, too precious, too artful, too thought about. I don't know, the writer says, my mouth and nose and hair aren't enough. I know, I'll add a hand. The author's trying too hard. There's no way to put a hand in a photo of your head and shoulders without making you look ridiculous. As the producer Jack Waltz says in The Godfather, a man in my position can't afford to be made to look ridiculous. So, keep the hand down on your lap or in your pocket. Let's look more closely at the components of a novel. They are called scenes. A scene is a unit. If your scenes are related to each other, and if you put them together, usually in a chronological sequence, you have a novel. Jack Hodgins of the University of Victoria says, quote, A scene is a unit of continuous prose narrative taking place in one location in which we see and hear characters close up in order to move the story ahead by showing what is accomplished when one or more characters come together to pursue a goal and either succeeds or fails or partially succeeds or fails. That's Jack Hodgins. Scenes are beads on a necklace. Successful scenes have a tried-and-true pattern. I'd like to talk about this, and this discussion in the next minutes is largely from Jack Bickham's book, Scene and Structure. I've mentioned this book before. It's the best single-volume book on writing novels I've come across. Here are the elements of a scene, and this is from Jack Bickham. One, a statement of a goal. Two, introduction and development of conflict. Three, failure of the character to reach her goal. In other words, a tactical disaster. 
Let's look at these components, and once again, I'm going to draw on Jack Bickham here, as he says it better than I can. A typical scene, in a typical scene, the protagonist enters the situation with a definite, clear-cut, specific goal, which appears to be immediately attainable. This goal represents an important step, something to be obtained or achieved, which will move him a step closer to getting his major story goal, according to Jack Bickham. So let's have our story goal for our protagonist, William, be this. He must find his missing fiancée. She's missing. He, he can't find her, doesn't know where she is. So the reader's story question is, will William find his fiancée? The reader reads the story seeking an answer to the, sto- to the story question the author has set out. You can't allow William to succeed or to fail totally on page two, otherwise there wouldn't be a novel. There'd just be two pages. So how do you keep from ending the story on page two? Development of the story depends on the writer's ability to place obstacles between the hero and the attainment of the goal. And how is this done, Jack Bickham asks? Usually by putting someone in the story who will provide ongoing opposition, a villain who will be in constant conflict with the hero. This conflict must be developed, and it must go somewhere. How do we do that? By developing a series of scenes. So let's assume the main story question is, will William find his fiancée? William comes up with a plan to fly to Sydney, Australia, where she has traveled, uh, where she had traveled for her business, uh, on business for her company. But William has no money, and he must borrow it. He goes to a bank, and he says, Mr. Smith, I need to fly to Australia and live there for a month or two to look for my fiancée. Will you loan me $10,000? Here, the reader clearly sees the short-term goal, the scene goal. William wants to borrow money. Uh, Just as the reader formed a story question, the reader now forms a scene question. Will William get the loan? And this is important. Jack Bickham says the scene question should not be a vague philosophical one, such as, what motivates someone like William? The scene question should be one, specific, and two, relate to a definite, immediate goal, and three, can be answered with a simple yes or no. Now, Jack Bickham says, there must be conflict. Why must there be conflict? Readers like conflict, and because a prompt yes to whatever the hero wants ends the scene instantly and relaxes all tension for the reader. So let's say the banker, Mr. Smith, says, Sure, just sign the loan documents and I'll give you the $10,000. Or maybe you'd like to borrow a little more. Australia is expensive. If this happens, the scene collapses. William leaves with the money, the reader relaxes, and when the reader relaxes, she loses interest in the story. Instead, we should have conflict, which should take up 95% of the scene. For a successful scene, Mr. Smith, the banker, cannot agree to loan the money. He must announce that he 
opposes such frivolous things as flying to Australia when it's a big country and there's not any indication where the fiancé might be in this big country, and he hints that she probably ran away from William in any event. In other words, William and the banker have a fight, a struggle. Here it's a fight with words, but it's still a fight. How do you make this interesting? Make the scene big and lifelike. Jack Bickham says these scenes of struggle are the be-all and end-all for lovers of fiction. Readers enjoy watching the antagonist punch and counterpunch. So how do you make such a scene interesting? How do you make it big? Bickham says there's a vital technique. You present the scene moment by moment. If you want maximum lifelikeness, lifelikeness and reader involvement, for example, here's an here's an example of a summary. This isn't this is not what we want. William and Mister Smith argued about their loan. The words were heated. That's not what Jack Bickham is talking about. He's talking about presenting the scene moment by moment. Something like this: She might be in Sydney. I don't know. William said, "That's the last place she was spotted." Sydney's a big city," the banker said, pulling at his chin. "I'll find her. A person just doesn't disappear without leaving a trace." Did you and your fiance have an argument just before she disappeared, as you term it? William leaned forward in his chair. "Are you suggesting she went to Australia to hide from me?" Smith folded his fingers together. "Anything's possible, isn't it?" So the scene between William and Mister Smith at the bank should be set out in real time. And is most likely dialogue. Remember our keys to effective dialogue: one, the better dialogue is argument, not agreement; and two, the reader drops in on the conversation after it has started, after the small talk's over, and leaves before it ends, with no small talk at the ending. And then, how is this scene ended? Most. Not all, but most scenes should end with a tactical disaster. Jack Bickham says, and he doesn't mean a flood or an earthquake, but rather the character experiences a twist at the end of the scene that denies him the scene goal and is a setback. Otherwise, William is happy. The reader's happy for William, and the reader puts the book down. A scene, if it's to be a building block of your novel, usually should not end well, but rather badly for the character. Not all scenes, certainly, but most scenes. William can't be allowed to attain his goal. He should leave the scene in worse shape than he was when he went into the bank. So it's a paradox: when you leave your hero in worse shape, you've left your novel in better shape. You've made progress. So, in terms of the scene question, it should usually not be yes. Whatever the character wanted, the answer usually should be no. When William walks out of the bank, he's been set back and in worse shape than he was when he entered because he has tried to take a step toward recovering his fiance, but has been rebuffed. And Jack Bickham says, and this is important. Whatever kind of tactical disaster you create to end the scene, your、uh, the writers, the writer must answer the scene question and none other.
the writer can't get by with an answer to the scene question that says, in effect, I don't know if William got the money from the bank, but he did have a terrible coughing fit on his way out of the bank. (laughs) Or, did William get the money? I don't know, but there was an earthquake as he was leaving the office. Why can't we do this? It's not playing fair with the reader, and the reader won't like it. It's the same thing as when we were talking about cheating the reader about the story question. You can't cheat the reader about the scene question either. Jack Bickham says, Your scene question, the no, that is the tactical disaster for the character, should be one unanticipated but logical development that answers the scene question, two relates to the conflict that has been presented, and three sets your character back. This is a strong lesson from Jack Bickham. I think he's spot on in his book, Scene and Structure. If you are finding these podcasts about writing fiction useful and would like to support the show, please hit the support the show button below and it will take you to Patreon and it'd be much appreciated. Let's change the subject. We've been talking about plotting our scene. Let's talk now about vivid sentence-by-sentence writing. I want to talk about one of the best and easiest ways we can make our sentences more vivid for readers. How to make our sentences stronger, uh, more gripping, and, and more immersive. And when our sentences are more vivid, our paragraphs and our entire novel will become more vivid. The story will seem closer to the reader. And this technique is this. We should avoid qualifiers and intensifiers. We've spoken about them before, and I want to return to them because it's so important. E.B. White called qualifiers, quote, the leeches that infest the pond of prose, sucking the blood of words. That's E.B. White. The literary world is filled with uh, then, uh, with these intensifiers and qualifiers, and some writing sinks under the weight of them. It's bad writing, and we can do better. And here's how. Here are some qualifiers. Rather, as in, it was rather cold. Somewhat, as in, it was somewhat cold. Generally, well, it was generally cold. Pretty, as in, it was pretty cold. Slightly, it's slightly cold. A bit, as in, it's a bit cold. Little, (laughs) it's a little cold. It's sort of cold. It's kind of cold. A qualifier is a modifier that has little meaning except to qualify the meaning it modifies. Qualifier is a word such as somewhat in the phrase, it's somewhat cold. Here, somewhat diminishes the word cold. Somewhat cold isn't as cold as cold. Somewhat is qualifying the notion that something is cold. It's pretty cold. It's slightly cold. It's sort of cold. It's a little cold. It's fairly cold. What's the problem with these qualifiers? They hedge the bet. They are an estimate. 
It's as if the writer is afraid to be specific, afraid to be bold. It's somewhat cold. All of these qualifiers are, are weak words, and they weaken the image. They take a strong word, such as cold, and weaken it. And because fewer words in a word in a phrase are usually stronger than more words, they pad a phrase. Why do we writers end up with qualifiers? It's because we couldn't find the right word or didn't take the time to find the right word for the phrase. So we end up with somewhat cold. The writer's fudging. She doesn't know if it's cold or not, so the reader doesn't learn if it's cold or not. It's the same with the other qualifiers mentioned a minute ago, pretty, rather, slightly cold, and the others. What should we do if we find ourselves typing somewhat cold, and then we realize that's tepid writing? We should dial it back or ramp it up. Somewhat cold means the writer couldn't think of the correct word, so fiddled with the word cold. We can hear the writer think as he composes. It's cold. Oh, maybe it's not really cold, so I'll write somewhat cold. To dial it back and use a better, stronger word, the right word might be chilly or brisk or breezy or cool. These are standalone words that tell the reader it's not quite cold and they don't use a weak qualifier such as somewhat. These words don't hedge. They're more accurate and stronger than somewhat cold. So we can dial it back or we can ramp it up. Why be tepid? Just say it's cold. Be bold. Make it cold instead of somewhat cold. I don't know anything about the scene you are writing right now, but I'll bet that cold works better than somewhat cold in the scene. This works for most qualifiers. Instead of almost exhausted, dial it back with he was tired or ramp it up with by, by saying he's exhausted. Instead of a bit crazy, dial it back by saying something like he was goofy or ramp it up and just say he was crazy. Instead of I'm kind of sorry I did that. Dial it back. I regret doing that. Or ramp it up. I'm sorry I did that. My guess, and I'll bet this works, my guess without knowing anything you are writing right now or planning to write in your scene, I'll bet in that scene, I'm sorry I did that, works better than I'm kind of sorry or I'm sort of sorry or I'm a little sorry or any other qualifier for sorry. Let's be bold in our writing and in the emotions of our character. Have her be sorry, not kind of sorry. So we should look out for these qualifiers rather, somewhat, generally, pretty, as in pretty much, slightly, a bit, a little, sort of, kind of. An intensifier is the opposite of a qualifier. It's a modifier that has little meaning except to intensify the meaning it modifies, according to Answers.com. What does that mean? An intensifier is a word such as very, as in it's very cold. The modifier very works to increase whatever it's modifying. Very cold must be colder than cold. 
With very cold, we can dial it back or ramp it up. Dial back. It was cold. Not very cold, but cold. Or we can ramp it up by finding the right word for very cold. It was freezing. Or it was biting. Or it was icy. Or it was frigid. All of these words are stronger and more immediate than it was very cold. They're more vivid. They're they're more muscular and they're more accurate. Here's another example. He was really a nut. (laughs) Nut is a nice slangy word. But really, in the phrase, he was really a nut, is an intensifier and is one of the weakest words in the English language. We should dial it back. Instead of saying, he's really a nut, say he's a nut. That's such a nice phrase, he was a nut. Or, ramp it up and be bold, he was crazy. Or, insane or foolish, whatever strong word works for your character. Here are some other intensifiers. I was absolutely tired. I was extremely tired. I was utterly tired. I was especially tired. I was incredibly tired. I was completely tired. I was particularly tired. And there are others. The problem with qualifiers and intensifiers is that they aren't specific. They're mushy. They're soft. They give a sentence a feeling of approximation. And they indicate the writer isn't really on her game, doesn't know enough strong words. We should try to avoid these. We should be bold. Choose the strong word, not words modified by these soft qualifiers and intensifiers. And our sentences will be more vivid. And that means our scene and our entire novel will be more vivid. Once in a while, I come across a fact that is so wonderful, I have to spread it. I tried to give this a hook to writing, make it somehow relevant to our our writing, but I couldn't find a way to do it. So here's the fact. What do these four states have in common? Alaska, Hawaii, Delaware, and Maine. I'm surprised you don't know it. These are the only four states in our country that don't have rattlesnakes. We are at the end, and it sounds like we're at the end, uh, of our uh, podcast today. I'm glad you were along for it. Uh, Please send me an email at any time. My email address is Jim Thayer Seattle at gmail.com. I'd also appreciate book recommendations. You might have read a wonderful novel lately, and I'm always on the search for them. So uh, please send a recommendation along. Until next time, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys. <laughs>